0: A podcast from Premiere Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad.
2: Hi, Tim. Uh, definitely in real life and not fake, as we will discuss. <laughs> Teaser uh,
1: for what we're about to talk about. Um, yeah, today we're uh, going to do a, okay, another one of a quickfire Q and A. We've got a couple of um, interesting news stories we wanted to to chat around and, and reflect on how how we as Christians might kind of wrestle with a world that appears to be hurtling down the track. Um, the, the first one you spotted, didn't you, Dad? It's it's an interesting new survey come out in the UK about um, infant mortality. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about what the numbers are
2: showing there? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about paediatrics as a medical specialty is that um, compared to other specialties, paediatrics and paediatricians have always been deeply concerned about social issues, about social deprivation, you know, much more so than cardiologists or neurosurgeons or general physicians or whatever. And of course, it's obvious why that's the case. And that is that as paediatricians, we see the impact of of social factors much more directly and much more obviously than than other medical specialties because it's like children are almost like the canary in the war in in the coal mine if there's a problem in society it's very often the first place you see is in children uh, because they're the most vulnerable to to changes <clears throat> in, in social context so i was just very struck by what I think is a significant news story, which seems to have snuck in with very little uh, notice. You know, at the time we we're recording, the terrible things going on between Israel and Gaza uh, is dominating the news headline, and as often said, these kind of tragic, massive news stories suck the oxygen out of other important stories. And, I think this is an important story because basically, what it's these are statistics uh, done by something called the National Child Mortality Database, which is an official um, organization started, I think, in 2019, collecting uh, prospectively um, child death information across England. And they've just published their uh, data for the year ending 31 March 23. And basically what it shows is there's been a very substantial rise in child mortality in England at all ages, and it's been taking place since 21. So from 21 onwards, there's been a significant rise in mortality. And when we talk about significant
1: rises, what are the raw numbers we're talking about here? Well,
2: if you you take the overall child death rate, 0 to 17, has risen from 3,000 per 100,000 to 3,743. So 3,056 in 2021 to 3,743. That's in all ch- childhood age, 0 to 17. But the um, interesting thing is, is that when you break it down, you see that this is not across all groups. So, for instance, if you do it by ethnicity, you see that whites have shown really virtually no significant change overall. The biggest rise has been in Asian or Asian British, um, and there's also been a very significant rise in black or black British. Um, And similarly, if you break it down by the degree of social deprivation, the groups who are least deprived have shown no significant rise, whereas the groups who are most deprived have shown a nearly fifty percent, uh, certainly thirty thirty to forty percent rise. Um, and if you go, then drill down and look at infants, and that's less than one year, we and we look again, particularly for instance, at Black British. Um, Uh, infants less than one year in 2021 the rate was it's gone from six per thousand to eight point seven per thousand and that's almost a 50 percent rise so so the story here
1: is is in in to kind of understand what you're saying and translate that uh, is that if you are poorer than average and if you are um from a a non-white if you're an ethnic minority in britain um you are in some cases 50 percent more likely to have your children die um from
2: today as opposed to as recently as three years ago that's right um and and it's pretty consistent so this, the same story happens for instance if you look across uk as a whole uh london and the southeast has the best rates and northeast has the worst rates. so it it's a very significant and consistent finding but of course trying to unpick it and, and and ask, you know, what's going on is much harder. But I think if you just, it's, what's important is to take this in the context. So if you just take the last hundred years, child mortality a hundred years ago was incredibly high. Um, and, you know, many families were affected by child death. It was, it was something that was virtually routine. And uh, over the last hundred years, with a combination of social and medical and public health, uh improvements we've seen dramatic reductions a year on year child and infant mortality has been falling steadily and consistently so to see this magnitude of rise in one of the richest countries in the world you know is startling and very concerning
1: and do we have any idea what is lying behind it what has changed in the last two to three years to to push so, I mean, you're saying really this is ultimately driven by poverty. What, what, is, what is causing um, uh, people in Britain, you know, in the more deprived um, communities to, to fall further into poverty with the corresponding increase in tragically that some of their children dying?
2: Well, it, it's, it's partly poverty, but it's, it's a much wider thing in terms of social deprivation. Um, I, and I suspect, of course, it's, it's multifactorial. And it, if we think back to the pandemic... Um, all kinds of adverse consequences, hidden effects of the pandemic and the lockdown. Um, so, so for instance, whereas normally if you had a young baby and you were struggling and finding it difficult to cope, you know, you'd know, you be um, taking your baby along to a baby clinic where someone would check that the baby was well looked after and was growing normally. Um, and, and a health visitor would often be coming visiting and, and checking up on, on, on the baby, particularly if there were reasons for concern. All of that stopped in the pandemic or, or went online. And we know that there was a rise in non-accidental injury and in in child neglect um, during the pandemic, particularly because of the lockdown. So so I think I think the pandemic had factors like that for the for the slightly older children. I think, you know, the, the problems with education, again, when a child is going to school and being seen daily by a teacher, they notice things, they notice that the child hasn't been properly washed, they notice that the child doesn't look well, has got bruises, all that kind of stuff. And of course, that whole safety ra- raft um, was lost during the lockdown. And do we think also the kind of economic
1: pressures and crises, if that's not too strong a word, of the last year and a half you know we've had record well not record but very high inflation you know particularly energy prices have gone bananas people have been struggling to afford food is that—is has that played a factor?
2: Yeah I, th- I think that's definitely part of it but I think that uh, it's interesting that a lot of this um, the rise seems to have happened before the so-called cost of living crisis. I think there have been political uh, decisions about child benefit and about um, the kind of uh, raft of um, the funding for uh, child protection and uh, all, all the whole raft of the welfare states provides to look after the most vulnerable families and the vulnerable children. And I wonder as well, um,
1: tied to the pandemic, but also kind of broader policy decisions by the government, we've seen a, a real crisis here in the National Health Service, haven't we? With um, you know record waiting times for for routine operations, but also you know accident and emergency services becoming almost collapsing in some parts of the country where you can be waiting 24 hours to be seen. And I wonder if that must be having a knock on effect on on the people who are, you know, who use health services the most, which we know tend to be the more deprived.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, and it's interesting, you know, if you think back to the early days of the pandemic, one of the whole arguments for the lockdown was to protect the NHS. Hmm. And <clears throat> why was it important to protect the NHS? answer we are seeing the consequences of a overloaded you know it, it's not just about people dying from covid it's about people being damaged and dying from that, everything else which got missed and which um so so the knock-on consequences um of uh problems in a health uh healthcare service in, in a modern country you know it's really important so i mean you know i i, I think this is as I said before, this is like the canary in the in the coal mine. I, I, I think it's telling us something very significant about um what's going on in the UK in the last two years. And particularly, I'm afraid what it points to is an increasing divergence, doesn't it, between the rich and the poor? Between those, you know, so here, you know, I'm based in London, you're based in Oxford, we're in affluent Uh, areas of the country we don't see this. this this is this isn't happening around us or much to a much less extent of course it's happening out in the east end of london in the deprived areas and it's certainly happening in other areas of social deprivation across the country so the gulf between the haves and the have now have nots has definitely widened when it comes to child health just in the last two years
1: and this is going to sound like an odd question um but uh so what, you know, what, this is of interest to paediatricians and public health experts. Why why are we talking about this? Why should Christians who aren't in this sphere, do you think, pay attention to this story?
2: Well, I, I think yeah, I feel it passionately, you know, because uh, it's part of the reason I went into paediatrics, because the vulnerable matter, you know, it's a theme we've come back to many times on this podcast, but it's uh, who was singled out in... Ancient Israeli society as being particularly concerned, answer widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor and they those that group come up time and time again across the Old Testament as people that the God of Israel is concerned about and so that theme you know that these are people that we should care about now you know the truth is that Christian churches and you know charities started by Christians are absolutely involved in these in these areas and doing wonderful work and there are many many Christians and fellow you know people who share the similar value systems who work in the health service who work in public health and child protection and social services and uh, education and so on but i think what really concerns me is about the the level of awareness um that these things are happening in our midst it would be possible to follow your uh, newspapers and your television and your social media and really not be aware of of these kind of issues that are taking place actually in a, in our country and there's an extra
1: challenge there for the church because we know that the church is disproportionately middle class and unfortunately tends to be strongest in kind of middle class communities and areas and so Maybe there's an additional requirement for church leaders and Christians to be paying attention to these kind of stories, these kind of figures, because we might, as you say, otherwise go, go unnoticed. But actually, unlike our our secular uh, middle class colleagues and friends, actually, we do have, as you say, a kind of calling to, to uphold the cause of the most deprived and the, the, the widow, orphan and
2: stranger in 21st century Britain. Yeah. And, and the other thing I would say is, you know, this is not rocket science. You know, there's so much emphasis on the really latest, you know, what artificial intelligence could do in terms of diagnosing cancer scans early about wonderful new uh, treatments that are becoming available. When it comes to preventing babies and infants and children dying, it's not rocket science. We know how to do this because we only have to look at the well resourced uh, groups and see it's not happening. So, that's the frustration which so many pediatricians feel you know why can't we get this very basic stuff right before we start completely obsessing about you know genomic uh, surveillance of, of newborns and, and so on it's just it just seems that our priorities are wrong hmm. and you can see this really clearly in in some of the stats the related stats
1: around things like um <clears throat> overall life expectancy which has also you know for hundreds of years been plummeting spectacularly with with you know things like hygiene and modern medicine and proper nutrition have seen um you know the ages in which people die gets get higher and higher and higher and then it's hits a plateau in the last kind of 10 to 15 years um as as wealthy nations um particularly in the UK and the US uh, have struggled to see those increases, and now since COVID, in many places it's going down. I mean, I looked in in the US; it's astonishing they've they've not dropped. Just they haven't just ticked down like we have here in the UK. But all progress since 2003 has now been reversed since 2020 in in the US, which is just absolutely remarkable in life expectancy terms.
2: Yeah, and you know this 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 term "deaths of despair" is is a term which you know I keep coming back to because I think it's a very very poignant very real thing you know that if you've lost a mean a belief that things are going to get better a belief that the future could hold uh something uh something to hope for something to look for then it's not surprising that that people turn their face to the wall for whatever reason and i'm just wondering how many of these baby and child deaths are actually deaths of despair because the parents for whatever reason are despairing Maybe they've got heavily into drugs and alcohol because everything seems so completely hopeless. Um, they've just drifted depression, and as a result, you know they don't die, but the children die. Hmm. And um, so, yeah. I mean, uh, on that cheerful note, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What else? We now do something completely different.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Our next uh, topic, our next question for this kind of quickfire Q and A one. Is, this is a kind of handbrake turn, Tim, isn't it? Yeah, yeah a little all... bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the molad way. Um, <laughs> was it was a piece um, from a, an interesting newsletter um, called "We Can't Compete with AI Girlfriends," and this is a piece by um, a, a young a young woman writer, Freya India, who um, has written a whole a, a very interesting, concerning piece about um the the rise of AI girlfriends, um, which are kind of chatbots you can um kind of sign up to as a as a young young man, I imagine, and you can kind of design your own virtual girlfriend and then you can talk with them. They'll even generate images. Um some some apps even offer quote hyper realistic voice calls with your uh, virtual partner um and and this is an apparently uh, it passed me by because I'm clearly not getting targeted with the same ads but apparently all over TikTok and Instagram and Facebook there are adverts for these kind of um AI girlfriends um and and the, and the, the journalist is kind of writing and saying this is doubly concerning in that it um it obviously imposes kind of unrealistic beauty standards um on on women because you can you know you can design your ai girlfriend to have exactly the right type of face and body that you like and often um, not a kind of face and body that real human beings often actually look like but also em- emotionally uh, the fear is that particularly young men um lonely young men in their bedrooms decide Do you know what i actually prefer my always available always servile always complimentary ai girlfriend to the the messy reality of a real human woman
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of story which, you know, if you're of a certain age and you're not really, you know, (laughs) totally into the zeitgeist, you would think this is just science fiction. This is, this cannot be true. And yet, there is this program called Replica, spelled with a K, which um, has been downloaded more than 20 million times. And this basically allows you to create an AI companion. Uh, and 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 frame them uh, exactly as you want them to be. And but then it's not just replica. There are lots of other companies now uh, getting in on this. Uh, so there's Dream GF, a Dream Girlfriend. I and 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 many others. And 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 they promise this artificially intelligent girl that's going to exceed your wildest desires. And um, surprise, surprise, it's nearly all men. Men are the vast majority of users. And um, there's this category called incels, uh, men who are involuntarily celibate because they can't find a girlfriend. And um, this now enables them to have an artificial intelligent girlfriend. Um, And uh, you have your dream girl builder where you can personalize every feature, uh, including their body and face and um but as you say you know it's the it's the emotional side is is what is what seems well well there are several things here isn't it so this article is written by a young woman and she says that the problem is how can um women compete you know what what is this doing to women it's it's unrealistic beauty standards you know that the, there's a whole generation of girls already hating how they look. This is what this is her words: suffering with facial and body dysmorphia, seeking cosmetic surgery in record numbers. Already, many girls feel as if they are in constant comp- competition with hypersexualized Instagram influencers and infinitely accessible porn stars. Now, the next generation of girls will grow up not just with all that, but knowing the boys they like can build and sex their ideal woman feeling as if they must constantly modify themselves to compete. Hmm. And she says, I find that tragic.
1: Yeah. I I mean, the obvious comparison here is the conversation that's been going for several years now about the destructive effect of online porn on a generation and particularly in young men but not exclusively young men who has who have kind of had their kind of sexual education through watching copious amounts of online porn as teenagers and then they you know start having actual real life sexual relationships and turns out real women don't look like that act like that sound like that I don't want to do the things that they've seen on porn and there's this huge disconnect often quite a destructive and harmful one between what these young men want and expect from their girlfriends because of their kind of porn adult brains a- and and what real actual human women want to do in, in a sexual relationship and this is just takes it to the next level where it's not just about physical intimacy but it's about emotional intimacy you know where She said, you know, already on Reddit, there are men raving about how their AI girlfriends never argue, complain, or get bored of them while real girls continually disappoint. And so, um, yeah, the the fear is, is that people become compare the two options and say you know what i I'll, I'll go for the one that strokes my ego and tells me i'm handsome and sexy and wonderful and is there always and, and never wants to you know have a night out with her girlfriends or you know is too tired to have sex and just wants to go to bed um and you know people disappear into this online world where where um it's ultimately profoundly destructive isn't it to live in that kind of simulated dream world, rather than actually engaging with the other human beings, the other image bearers God has created us to live in community with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, we've talked before about how this techno world, the techno optimist dream of the future is a kind of frictionless Hmm. future where all your desires, all your longings, all your wishes can be just instantly satisfied at the, the push of a button. And or even just the thought, you know, that you don't even need to. <laughs> the latest generation, you won't need to to, to even, uh, you know, press a keypad. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the problem, of course, is that for us as human beings, we are. Is this the kind of future in which we can flourish? Is this going to be good for men? Is it going to be good for women? Um, you know, w- we are created to be embodied. Um, and to and to engage in messy difficult challenging frustrating but ultimately wonderful and fulfilling relationships with one another mm. but this this fantasy world which is actually very attractive to many people and of course a lot of it is driven by commercial factors because this makes money they need some of, you know many of these Guys who can't find a real world girlfriend have got a lot of money, Hmm. and they're prepared to pray if they can have their artificially intelligent girlfriend that really matches their needs.
1: Hmm. Because the
2: challenge here is,
1: how do you sound the alarm about this um, as a as a as a Christian as a church without? people dismissing you as saying, oh no, well, Christians are just anti-sex and they're repressed and they're prudes and, you know, they're so socially conservative, you know, wh- why should we listen to what they have to say? Like, how do we draw, d- how do we, we warn society about the the downsides of this, this dead end that people seem to be determined to drive down without people dismissing us as kind of, um, you know, hyper-conservative prudes?
2: Absolutely. And of course, even closer to that, how do we as parents and grandparents, how do we prevent our children and adolescents getting sucked into this? Or how do we encourage them at least not to? And I think the basic message is that we've got to make the real world alternative seem much better, Hmm. so much more worthwhile, so much more rewarding, fulfilling, wonderful uh, by comparison, with which this artificial stuff is just t- cheap saccharin, mm. um, and and so it's a, it's a real challenge, isn't it? So, what is the quality of our real world relationships? What is the quality of our real world marriages? Of mm. our real world um, friendships? Are they so positive and strong, uh, despite the challenges and, and difficulties, that other people will say, you know, well, that's what I want. That's much better. Mm than this this artificial synthetic saccharin version yeah
1: that certainly is, isn't it a big challenge for parents where saying how are we in the way that you know our children are watching how we as related as husband and wife um communicate and talk to each other and and love each other and live out the the, the kind of messy reality but the joyful reality of a real world relationship where people disagree and you know aren't just simply there to like stroke each other's ego and provide sexual satisfaction how do we how do we model that in a way which says you know what this is harder but better than the kind of as you say the cheap saccharin hit of uh of replicas um ai version
2: yeah and uh, i'm reminded of that uh, that very good book by andy crouch the tech wise family mm. you know where he's saying how do you Uh, persuade adolescents not to go back into their bedrooms and just spend the whole time on their smartphones. And he says, basically, what you got to do is you got to make the alternative uh, of how a family can uh, live together so much more attractive, so much more fun, what we can do together is so much better Hmm. than anything I can get on my smartphone, um, that I would much prefer to do that. And it's like, it's the analogy of that, isn't it with relationships? that we've got to somehow uh, model to our children. And yet, you know, I don't think we should overstate. I mean, you know, you were exposed to a very uh, warts and all marriage, um, <laughs> you know, as a child, and yet somehow you managed to... <laughs> didn't give up, <laughs> up on the whole institution. Give up completely. You know? <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it isn't that we have to be perfect in our relationships, but but we do have to model something which which actually seems attractive
1: hmm. yeah we've actually covered this on the podcast before haven't we about some of the deeper but questions behind this about uh the risks of of simulation and, and
2: what effect that has on us and how christians have thought about that yeah you know of of course the bad stuff that that ai and simulation can do is, is pretty obvious things like you know deep fake pawns porn pawn and uh Uh, horrible things uh, internet pornography and so on but part of me is actually my intuition is I think we have to be more worried as Christians by the good stuff the simulation of what apparently seems to be you know what what on earth's wrong with having this wonderful simulated woman who who loves me and cares for me and makes me feel good I come home at work and I just can't wait to log on and have this sexy conversation with this wonderful woman who's always available Um, so you know the deeper theological thing is is that it seems to me that in the battle against evil and against the forces of evil this is a much more subtle kind of approach you know it, it's it's an attractive option you know what could possibly be wrong and I I think, you know, we as Christians need to develop a way of uh, thinking, you know, about about our faith. Uh, Because, you know, historically, I don't think Christianity has really had to struggle with this, you know. But, you know, the church fathers didn't seem to spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, what to do with fake um, technological fakes. Um, but, so this... but but
1: but they did have to address the heresy of Gnosticism, Get it? which said the physical, fleshy, real world is 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 rubbish and will fade away and doesn't count, doesn't last, and what God is interested in is our immaterial, spiritual realities. And I'm not saying it's the same as a thing, but that's just, there is this, there has been a a need for the church to restate and make the case for you know flesh and blood and dirt and soil and the goodness of god's creation and, and our created bodily nature in it since since the first century and maybe we it's this is our our version of having to make the case for 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 the messy reality of of, of actual creation rather than our, our, the modern gnosticism is, is disappearing into an ai spiritual world
2: yeah I, you know i think you're absolutely bang on i think this is a kind of techno gnosticism um, and I've actually been going back and reading uh, about some of that ancient stuff about uh, Gnosis in the uh, and the Gnostic movements in in the first and second centuries. What's interesting is how much the Church Fathers again they saw it as a threat, mm. even though it's superficially it was very spiritual. Um, the, the Church Fathers definitely uh, spent quite a lot of time. Uh, pointing out its errors um, and pointing to the incarnation and the resurrection of jesus as being the evidence that um it's it's flesh the word became flesh this is really important uh, to understand so i i think i think this is a kind of new kind of materialist gnosticism uh, but it it's got some features of the same it's got obviously other things which are utterly and totally different and and we need to work out how to develop a positive attractive but telling way to to attack this and the final thing i would say is that what i sense is that many many other people out there in society they have intuitions that this cannot be right Mm. you know they look at this stuff and you know, they don't have any kind of philosophical underpinning, but just they intuit this is not a healthy way for our children to go. This is not a healthy route for the, the human race. But then the question is, well, why not? What is wrong with it? And I think, you know, the fascinating thing is that historic, biblical, Trinitarian Christian faith actually provides this philosophically robust um theologically thought through reason for why it's wrong and why it's there's a better way
1: so final question then do you think this will become a huge dividing line in let's say 20 30 years time when the kind of ai economy has has come to fruition do you think the evangelical church it's kind of abstinence from its rejection of um you know ai girlfriends and and everything else is, is is going to become something, our kind of a clear dividing line where we say, actually, those weird Christians, you know, they don't, um, you know, let their kids do X, Y, and Z that everyone else does. And and, and if so, is, is that, would that be a good thing or would it actually just kind of further alienate ourselves from, from everyday
2: culture? It's a really good question. And of course, second guessing the future is <laughs> completely pointless. All I would say is is from a historical perspective, what strikes me is how much the church is always much more infected by the secular zeitgeist than it realizes. And although it takes time, you know, bit by bit, the church tends to adopt the practices of the secular culture. And, you know, like when I grew up, the really dangerous things was television and you know spending too much time on the radio and spending too much time reading novels these these are and, and watching <laughs> films these, these are worldly things you know and here we are fast forward 60 years and and none of those things are regarded by christians as being particularly significant um and and we've just absorbed and taken on the zeitgeist so my fear would be that unless there is a, a really clear understanding of why this is wrong, that that it will just slowly seep into our. Maybe we'll find that AI generated uh, pastors and uh, companions uh, are are really good in our churches and and they do much better than the real human lot. It's well, pretty I, useless. I was going to say, you know, as a closing <laughs> thought, will it shock you to discover that there is already
1: a, a, an AI Jesus? that you can download onto your phone and have conversations with and ask for <laughs> spiritual advice. You know, I read a story about that literally just last week. You know, there's a, so some Christians are already deciding this technology has got great benefits and, and why not get lost in a kind of pastoral spiritual conversation with an AI version of Jesus trained on the Gospels. Um, then actually go through the the messy live reality of joining a physical church and and a and a home group and reading the actual Bible and praying to the actual Jesus. Quite.
2: You could have the chatbot Jesus, uh, the chatbot Bible is so much better than the real thing.
1: Yeah, it has answers to all my questions. I don't have to say, I don't have to try and do a that that tedious exegesis. <laughs> I can just ask it. What does the Bible say about X? Bing. Bing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's to be continued. Yeah. Sign me up to the neo-Luddite movement if that's where we're headed. Um, uh, thanks, Dad. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, but we'll be back next week with another episode. Um, uh, there's lots more on this topic. Particularly, we uh, Dad's written an interesting piece about simulation uh, and some of the theological kind of engagement with the big thinkers from the 20th century uh, around that on on Dad's website. So do look that up. Um, and also as well as our previous podcast about this idea of simulation, um, and, and AI. Um, and and also um, we're we're interested in hearing your your suggestions of kind of news topics or or news stories, developments you'd like us to respond to or interesting movements in culture that you think we should have a think about. So please do keep sending in your questions and and prompts for episodes. Um, You can find us on molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Or if you're on Twitter, um, you can message me at T-S-W-Y-A-T-T. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye.